Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we're all able to be here. I pray that you soften our hearts, you make our hearts tender, you teach us with gentleness, with love, with kindness. I pray that your Holy Spirit work within us, transforming us, teaching us what is necessary to uh, live out your word, whether that be your word in the scriptures or the word that is taught today on abortion. Father, I pray that you help me as a speaker. I really need your spirit right now, and I also pray that you help each and every one of us to learn uh, how much you love and care about us. I thank you, Lord, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when I told my friend that I was going to be preaching on abortion, <laughs> he just kind of said, what? You're going to be doing this? And I said, yeah, I think I bit off more than I could chew. This is a very controversial topic. It's something that most of us do not really talk about. Most of us do not really want to think about abortion or anything that has to deal with such a controversial topic. There's an atmosphere, an environment of silence, an environment uh, that does not want us to speak up uh, about this topic, mostly because it is so controversial, it is so debated, and there's so many different emotions going on on this topic. On one side, it, say, uh, it says that the human fetus is a human being that is deserving of a right to life, and on the other side is saying that forcing a woman to keep a child that she does not want is extremely uh, shameful and antagonizing, something that is uh, extremely evil in many senses. But today I'm not going to be villainizing, I'm not going to be debating, I'm not going to be attacking or uh, uh, sarcastically dismissing one side or the other. I don't want us to have a debate. I don't want us to be contradicting one another and dismissing one another. Instead, I want to have a dialogue. I want to have a true conversation, an interaction with truth, beauty, and love in the mix. I want us to speak with our voices and not just echoing other people and other points that we've heard either from our classmates or from online. Oh, yeah, you can turn the slide. But I feel like it is necessary to talk about this controversial topic with your voices intact, not just echoing things that you have heard or, or things that I have heard or things that make me scared to say. Because I know that if I do not speak the truth, if I do not speak what is right, what is good, then my head is hanging underneath the sword. That is the word of God. So what is it about this topic? How can we talk about this controversial topic without causing anybody pain? I do not know if that is entirely possible. Some of you might say that I've gone too far. I've been too antagonistic. Or some people might say that I've got not gone far enough, that I didn't go out to show how evil abortion is. But I want to pray. I want to be with you. I want to work through this with you all. And the first thing that I really truly believe, the thing that God gives to us, the two greatest gifts that God gives to us, as Martin Luther says, is he has given us the word of God, and secondly, he has given us music. He has given us music. The things that touch our hearts the most is the art form of music. It is in poetry. 
So I want to, so today we were reading Psalm 139. I just wanted to go through that with you to show how much God loves us when we're in the womb or whether we're out in the world, in the light or in the darkness. God is always there for us, caring for us, giving our lives meaning, showing us the truth, growing with us, taking care of us all the time, even when we feel that he is not there. So turn with me to Psalm 139. Next slide. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. All right. So, yeah, you can turn the slide. When David was writing this, he was writing not only to teach us something, that God values us, but this poetry was meant to be played with music, to be danced to. When the Jews heard about this, they would sing these words. They would sing, oh God, how wonderful you have made me. How fearfully you have made me. You have given meaning to my life. You have changed me. You're always walking with me, even when I was in my mother's womb. Now this type of poetry you might say it's just a metaphor. It's something that God doesn't really care about. But what I say to you is that music and art and beauty, these things are more real to us. These metaphors are more precious to us than the things that have a scientific study or a thing that comes every 10 or 20 years to prove that for research that a human fetus is not a human person with any meaning in its life. You might say that a human fetus is unable to experience any meaning because it has not developed its brain structure. That's just a couple of cells, just like the cells on your skin, that when you brush it off, millions of them die. But that's, there's a difference there. The cells on your skin have a purpose, but the cells of a fetus have a different purpose. Its life is to continually grow within its mother's womb until nine months later it emerges into this earth. And likewise, in your brain, in your heart, those cells are different from the skin cells on your skin. Those, your skin cells can be uh, destroyed and removed, but the cells in your heart, the cells in your brain, when you remove millions of them, billions of them, 
you will not end up lasting. When I say this, I'm not trying to create a difference between science and poetry. You might say that poetry and art and scripture, this thing is 3,500 years, years old. It doesn't matter what it says about our modern day, but I say that actually this matters more because for 3,500 years, millions, billions of people have read this passage, have been motivated by it, have been shaped by it. They saw the words, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Lord God, you have knitted me together in my mother's womb. And they have said, that is true. That is more true than anything else that I have experienced. Even in the darkest parts of their life, even when they feel like they're all alone in the world, they say, no, God, you are there with me ever since I was conceived. And all the way, in, even when I am in heaven, or even when I am in Sheol, which is hell, you are there with me. Even when I'm going through all of this terrible emotions, all the terrible loneliness, the depression, the anxiety, God, you are there with me, no matter what. And that starts in the womb. It starts in the womb. Uh, go back one, yeah. Oh, what? Uh, go back, yeah, there we go. So that's what Martin Luther was trying to say. God has given us two great gifts. The first great gift is in Scripture, the thing that we read that is true. But the second great gift is music. Because when the Jews would hear this, when the people of God would hear this, they would be changed and transformed, motivated to sing and to dance. That God, you are truly good. That you truly love me. That you truly care for me. No matter where I go, you still find me. Nowhere, no matter where I hide, or no matter where I'm taken, Lord God, you're a good, good father, and you will still come and find me and bring me out of this. We are constantly growing, growing and growing, being more and more like God. You know, music is not just for our entertainment or just for our economical benefit. You know, it brings us together. It unites us in our pain. When we sing the songs, Lord God, you know, you know our sorrow, but you have transformed us. You shape us. You make us. You transform our pain into joy, and we rejoice. Lord God, we sing this. We dance to this. It's a true human experience. It's not just something that we should be using just for entertainment or just for economical benefit, changing it to turn it into money, right? Music ties us together as human beings, and it ties us to our highest conviction. It ties us to God. Okay, next slide, please. So what is the conviction for us to keep and to love our child? What is the conviction for us? It, should be, it shouldn't just be, you know, it's wrong to have an abortion. It's wrong because from Scripture we see that the human fetus is, in fact, a child, something that is loved, something that is meaningful, and killing it would be wrong. Therefore, I'm going to keep the child. That's one way to look at it. But I want you guys to look at it in a different way, to look at it through the eyes of God, to look at it as continually loving with conviction and care, to have faith that God has a plan for you and your baby, that even though things are dark and painful, there will come peace, joy, and victory over these things. We choose to bear our suffering and the suffering of others to bring to light the goodness and sweetness of life to others. We choose to bear the suffering of others in order to bring goodness and sweetness 
to others. Isn't that what Christ does for us? Isn't that what God does for us? Even when we sin against him, God is always on our side, wanting of us to repent, to come back to him. God cares deeply about us. God wants us to be with us. God wants us to continually uh, forgive others just like he has forgiven us. But can we put this care for the human fetus, for the child that is growing within the womb? I say more so because it does not have a voice of its own. It cannot speak out to ask for love. Instead, it is completely upon us who have been grown, who matured, to say that I will choose to love you. Yeah, that's a very hard and difficult decision. It is always hard to suffer for another's sake. It is much easier to go and look the other way, to say that you're not a human being. I do not want you. You're going to derail my plans. You're going to derail what I'm trying to build in my life. You're not part of me. You're not part of my plans. The thing is, is that a lot of this is pushed together by our culture. I think a lot of the things that we talk about in healthcare, a lot of the things that we talk about in this changing and shifting culture have really come to light in these past couple of years. Uh, next slide, please. There has been a redefinition of what good is. When we think of good, it is at a, an expense for ourselves. We choose to do good, and many times this costs us something. But, however, the culture has changed it so that what is good is something that is not painful, that is painless, something where you don't have to suffer, that is good. Something that is good is like a good movie. You just pay money, and then you go and see it, and then now you, all you have to do is, is watch the movie, just to observe. There's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no undertaking of it. But where Christ says what is good is not the movies, not a show, but a story, a story that challenges us, that changes us, that transforms us, that fills us with love. The culture is also redefining healthcare and medicine, what is good in it. No longer is medicine based on healing or curing people, but it is based on consumerism, materialism, greed, and preserving lifestyle preferences. It relies on flimsy evidence of mental health in order to prescribe anything to anyone without caring about how this would affect their physical health in the long run. Now, you might say, oh, that, is this just in the terms of abortion? Is that how it's changed in the healthcare system? No. It's changed so dramatically in the past several years. The first case I want to show you, uh, next slide please, is Ozempic. Right? You might have heard this on Twitter or on TikTok. Uh, Elon Musk has set, claimed that he's been using Ozempic in order to lose weight. He used Wegovy. This type of thing, this type of medication is meant for type 2 diabetes to, it, to allow, inhibit uh, blood sugar in your system. If you are not able to get this and you're type 2 diabetic, guess what? You can suffer from a stroke. And people are struggling to find this because so many rich people are able to afford it, buy it off, shelf, uh, off their uh, medical doctors being prescribed to them just so that they could lose weight, just so that they could lose weight. Is there anything that we need Ozempic for? Yes, there's a real medical thing that we need Ozempic for. It has to be here. It has a good to shape human health. But what happens when we let the market come in and control it, when we let consumerism allow it to take uh, its reach into it, then all the people who just want to be skinny, all the people who want to lose weight easily, they're just going to buy up all the medicine. And the people that need it the most, the people who are poor, unable to access health care, they're not 
able to reach it. They're not able to reach it. And that's how medicine is being transformed. It's no longer this medicine is for you to cure you of your diabetes, to help you in your life so that you don't die of a struggle, or that you don't uh, suffer from headaches or uh, pain or high blood pressure. Instead, well, you know, I'm going to sell it to the person who has, who's the highest bidder. I'm going to try to make the most money that I can. Instead, people are unable to see the alternatives that instead of taking Ozempic, you should take care of your diet. You should sleep regularly. You should exercise more. All of those things are extremely hard when all you could do is just take this medicine once a day. It'll cost you $1,000 know, per shot, but if you're rich, that's nothing. It's much harder than to, than to enjoy your best food or to exercise when you have no time, right? And that's the case for Ozempic. I'm not trying to Keep, uh, keep myself in a blood sugar level. I'm just trying to preserve my lifestyle. I'm just trying to preserve this image of myself that I'm a skinny person, that I'm good and I'm attractive and I'm healthy, when in reality you have to keep taking Ozempic every single day in order to keep your blood sugars low. Or else once you stop taking it, it's going to spike and you're going to be back at the same weight you once were. It's a drug. It's an addiction. Not an addiction to something physical that is manifesting in our brains, but it's something that's spiritual. We're addicted to this image of ourselves that we want other people to see how beautiful, how skinny, how attractive we are. Case number two would be steroids. Uh, steroids, right there is the liver king. Some people might know the liver king. Right? He just got outed out for using steroids, even though he said for years that all, he's all natural. All he does is eat liver. In fact, you should buy his liver pills to go and eat so that you could look like him. But the thing is that steroids is a very important medicine. Doctors should be prescribing it to cancer patients, to people who have heart uh, issues, who have muscle problems, muscular dystrophy. They need it in order to walk, and some of them in order to live. But instead, they're prescribing it to people who want to increase their lifestyle brand. They're taking this dangerous steroid, which could cause them to have inflated hearts, to have heart attacks, to have strokes, to, to have all sorts of different terrible uh, symptoms and side effects. But doctors are giving it to them because they want to promote their brand. They want to promote their lifestyle. They want to make money uh, scamming people, young men in particular, depressed young men, in order to make money off of them. And that's the thing, right? Medicine, what is it good for? Is it there to save lives? Is it there to prevent disease? Or is it just there to promote our lifestyle brands? The thing is that brands, when we, last time we were talking about brands on human beings, it was about slavery. It was branding people with fire, with iron, to claim that you are mine. And that is what the market is doing with us, is claiming on our bodies that you are mine. You serve money. You serve the highest bidder. And that is what Ozempic, that is what steroids are doing. And I would say for case three, what abortion is doing as well. Some people, like I said, some people in this world really need a medical abortion or else they're going to die. Right? Their cervix is too small, or it's deformed, or the child is, are, has already passed away. And they need to get, uh, to get rid of the pregnancy in order to survive. There is a medical need for abortion. Very true. But at the same time, this percentage of people that get abortions is very small. The ma vast majority of abortions, 99% of it, is to keep a woman away from being shamed or the pressure of giving birth or becoming a mother. It's to preserve their lifestyle. It's to preserve their mental health. And these are real things. These are real things that can cause people a lot of mental anguish and physical pain, pregnancy, and giving birth. 
You're not ready to change. You're not ready to be from a daughter now to a mother. It's a real thing. It's a real experience that we have. But here's the thing. Do we have the right to do this just because we feel the pain, just because we feel the suffering, just because we bear this responsibility? Do we put that responsibility on the child and get rid of it? Just like alternatives for Ozempic or steroids, are there alternatives for abortion? Do we have to go to this extreme? This question was asked very personally of my Old Testament professor. One day, he got a message from his, one of his students. She was also uh, one of her, his church congregants. He was a pastor of a church, and she came to him, telling him, like, Pastor, and Professor, I'm pregnant. Now, she was in the Christian Studies program. She, they know their boyfriend. He wants to be a pastor. They want to take care, good care of him, but she was pregnant with his child. They've been having unprotected sex uh, outside of marriage. And she said to my Old Testament professor, she, says, she said, I want to get an abortion. And my professor said, you know, I know this time is really hard for you. I don't want you to get an abortion. I don't want you to live with that guilt. Instead, I want, you know, if it's possible, I would love to adopt your child, to love her as my own daughter. I want to love her and take care of her just as I would my own child. He's willing to offer up his house, his home, his money in order to preserve her life for the good, to give her a good life. And sadly, even with that offer, she turned it down. She could not live with the shame of being pregnant in front of her classmates. She could not live with the shame that you know, this is something that she can bring out in the world. So she decided still to take an abortion. You know, so I want to ask us, what are other alternatives to getting an abortion? The thing is, is that his heart was completely right, but it's entirely dependent on you. It's still entirely dependent on you, what you decide, what you choose, sadly, in this world. You can still choose to sin. I know it's wrong. It's no, it's wrong. But at the same time, what can we do? Are there any alternatives to getting abortion? Well, the thing is, is that there are many different alternatives. There are things like Obria uh, Healthcare Center, Pregnancy Center, that FCBC Walnut is working with today, right now. We're hoping to get enough money in order to do good by them, $30,000 to donate. What they're doing is that they're showing uh, pregnancy scans of uh, the fetus, showing them the baby before it's born. A lot of times when uh, mothers first see their child in the womb, their heart changes. They don't see it just as... Uh, a distraction or something that is getting in the way of their careers or their lives or their education, but they see it as their own child. The thing is, it's not psychological manipulation. A lot of times that, it's not, it's not psychological manipulation. A lot of times the things that go on in our brains, when we find out something dramatic has happened in our lives, our brains go into survival mode. We can't think about anything else but getting out of this terrible situation. But that's not how we're, human beings are supposed to live. We're not just here to survive. We're here to do good. We're here to bring heaven on earth. We're here to worship Jesus, to rejoice with joy, to overcome our pain. And that's where the most beautiful stories are. Uh, Next slide, please. So what about it? How do we take care? How do we talk about this in an honorable way? How do we engage in antagonistic culture? Like I said in the beginning, 
there's a culture of silence, there's a culture of uh, an orthodoxy out there in the secular world. We're not supposed to talk about this, or if you do talk about it, you gotta talk about how pro-lifers, you know, those people are just completely uh, insane, or they don't care about the mother. No, we really want to care about the mother, because that's what Christ does. We care about the fetus, we care about the mother, because that's what Christ does. He doesn't just care about one thing or the other. Instead, he cares about all of us. All of our lives are valuable. All of our lives are valuable. And we should put our uh, money where our mouths are, taking care of both the unborn and also of mothers who are struggling with their pregnancy. And that's what we should be talking about. That's what we should be caring about. I think uh, 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 14 shows us in the manner in which we should be talking about these things, talking about these controversial topics. Right, so verse 11, but as for you, O men of God, you know, flee these things, which is controversy, which is antagonism, which is uh, unfruitful debate. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Char I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and to Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next slide, please. What a beautiful passage Paul writes to Timothy. Paul is being imprisoned by the Roman guards. He's been imprisoned by the emperor himself, and he's going to be sent uh, to trial for preaching the gospel. But what does he say? How do we fight the good fight in this combative world? He tells us to fight and not to resign the good resign, right? Sometimes when things are controversial, things are hot, we want to resign. I have no voice in this. I do not want to speak up. I'm just going to let them talk, and I'm going to let God sort things out. That is not the right way to engage our culture. That is not the right way in order to engage our enemies, the people who Jesus also loves. Because Jesus also loves them, we have to fight with righteousness, with godliness, with faith, with love, steadfastness. And the last one is so beautiful, with gentleness, with gentleness. But how do you fight a fight with gentleness? It's so oxymoronic, it's so paradoxical, but the thing is that this is the reality because they are not really, they are our enemy, but in the same time, they are a sinner just like us. We understand that we have been sinners, that we need the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ to help us. So that's why we fight with gentleness because we're not trying to overcome them or just dominate them, to be sarcastic, to attack them, to say that I'm right and you're wrong. But no, we approach them with gentleness. We approach them understanding that the topic is much more complex than any one of us can understand. So we go to them with music, with love, with praise, with joy and rejoicing. You want to show them that there's a better way, that even in this darkness, even in this pain, there can be good things done. We want to remind people, I want to remind you all that the market doesn't control you, the brands don't control you. The, the thing that about money, a lot of times when we're going into college, we ask, you know, how can I make good money? 
When the real question should be, uh, we should be asking ourselves is, how can we make our money do good? Not how can we make good money. How can we make our money do good? What is it? How can I spend my dollar so that more and more people are blessed? More and more people have joy, have something to be given to them. That it should be one of the focuses of our lives. So I want you, you know, to give your time if you want to volunteer at O'Brien Pregnancy Center in Whittier, or if you want to donate. We have a goal of thirty thousand dollars to donate to O'Brien uh, Pregnancy Center. All of these different things, but likewise, there, there's a truth to it that there's more to life than just winning. There's more to life than just being the top rat in the rat race. Because even if you're the top rat in a rat race, you're number one rat, you make the most money, you're still a rat. You're still a rat. So the thing is that we are called to a higher calling. We're not rats. We're human beings, people who love, people who have community, people who challenge one another with the truth, to speak out with their voice, to shout out with their voice the joy, the rejoicing, the love that is in the gospel, in music that changes us, that shapes us, not only from from womb to tomb, as some preachers might like to say it. We preach the gospel from womb to tomb all the time. That's right. God is with us from the very first day we are conceived to the very last day when we breathe our last breath. And God is there with us. And we show this gospel. We share this with the culture in love, steadfastness, and gentleness. We engage politics in this manner, not in the way that we want to politicize church but in a way that we want to Christianize, gospelize, change the culture so that it's filled with love and gentleness. Next slide, please. You know, we, how do we engage real suffering in this world? It's easy to look at other people and say that, you know, you're doing things wrong. You need to care more about real things than about money. But real things, you know, a lot of times people can't afford real goodness, real truth. They're always focused on how this can affect us monetarily. The thing is that real people do suffer because they have an unplanned pregnancy. This is true. I don't want to minimize that any manner. Many people are filled with fear, hopelessness, anxiety, depression, regret, and pain. We do not trample on these feelings or ignore them because these feelings are real. They're unsavory. They're part of the human life that we're ashamed of, that we don't want to look at. That's why we've been so silent all the time. When our friends say, hey, you know, I want to get an abortion, (laughs) what are you going to say? I know that many times I'm like, oh, okay. But the thing is, is that we need to focus, right? The things that force us in order to do the things that we do, those things are real. But at the same time, the things that help us overcome these feelings are real as well. Next slide, please. I want to argue that the darkness for many of us is real. But the light which overcomes that darkness is more real, more powerful than the darkness. The light is more powerful than it. These feelings that cause us suffering, that cause us anxiety, the gospel which helps people overcome these feelings must be equally, if not more, real. Right? Because pain, suffering, these things can cause human beings to do the most despicable acts. 
but at the same time, we look to the cross and we can say, no, pain and suffering can be overcome by Jesus Christ, who takes the pain and the suffering of this world and bears it upon the cross through his love. Therefore, God's love must be more real. The things that help me overcome my feelings of selfishness, my feelings of self-preservedness, my feelings of menace towards society, something must be bigger than this. And that's what I want to show uh, into the world. That's what we all should be doing when we're fighting the good fight, that there's something bigger than the darkness. There's something bigger than our anxieties of our selfish lives. I ask myself, like, if I'm ever put in this situation, and for some reason I slip, and I, I tell the person that I'm with, you know, whether it be a girlfriend or a wife, that they should be getting an abortion so that we can go to a vacation in Fiji or a vacation somewhere else. I, I don't know if I'd ever be able to live with myself. We don't take another person's life in order to preserve our lifestyle. We don't take another person's life in order to preserve our brand. We don't take their life because we want to preserve our education, our careers, but yet many people do. They say that this is not allowed. But when the person does not have a voice for themselves, when the culture allows it, then it's okay to do. The thing is, is that what happens when you do this and you're filled with guilt about it? You have nowhere left to go. What is the church going to do with this person? Do we shame them out the door? Do we say, we told you so, we knew that you were going to feel bad about this, that you're going to regret this? No, that's not what we do. We bring them back into the fold. We tell them the three most powerful words that Christ has uttered, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. That even the most ignorant of acts can be forgiven because that is the power of Christ's love. Even the most selfish act that we can do, Christ forgives us. Christ continues to love us. Christ continues to cherish us, not because of our own works, but because of how good and great he is. He has put meaning in our lives in the womb all the way to the tomb. He has put meaning and worship and love and rejoicing right when we were in the womb, right there. We would not be where we are today if someone else had not loved us first. For many of us, that is our parents. Other people is teachers. Some of them is pastors. And most of all, all of us, because of God. God, our Heavenly Father, has loved us. I, I want to just think sometimes. Last night I was thinking, like, when was the last time that I said, I love you, to my father? Because I was up awake at night, 4 a.m. I was thinking, man, I really need to go to sleep in order to preach a sermon in the morning or else I'm going to oversleep. So I took extra uh, sleeping pill medication. And I thought, man, my father, he must have been somebody else because he was waking up 5.30 every morning to prepare me and my sister breakfast in order to take me to school. And I never once said to him, thank you for taking me to school. Thank you, Father. I love you, Father for doing all this, all that you have sacrificed for me. And that is the meaning of mercy. Being merciful for someone else is sacrificing for someone else, giving up something that you have for the other person to say to them that you are a son, a daughter, you are a brother and a sister. And that's what God does for us. Being merciful is not saying that my human child, my fetus, is going to get in my plans and they're, they're going to live a, pain, a life of suffering and I'm going to get rid of them because I don't want them to live a life full of suffering. 
That is, is that merciful in our culture? Many people would say yes. But the thing is, is that mercy requires us to sacrifice. Mercy requires us not to sacrifice others, but to sacrifice ourselves. And that's what Christ shows on the cross. Mercy is not killing someone right before they're about to experience some terrible pain. No, mercy is bearing that pain for somebody else on the cross. That's what God our Father does for us. He bears the pain and he shows us good mercy. That is true mercy, not the perversion of mercy that the culture has put upon us, that is redefined for us today. Next slide, please. Here's the big idea for today. The life in the womb is valuable, is meaningful, and is loved by God. It is a human person, and it deserves a right to life. But likewise, the person across the aisle from you who disagrees with you, who antagonizes you, who demonizes you, who is sarcastic to your beliefs, who ignores you and silences you, they're also a human being. And Paul tells us to love them and to speak with them, to fight with them, but with gentleness, not to resign into our comfortable spots just to go to the people that we're most comfortable with. No, we challenge one another. We face one another, just as Christ faces us and our sin. He doesn't just ignore it. They're our friends. We care about them. We want them to be saved, just like Christ, our Savior. We show them mercy, just as God has shown us mercy. We show them goodwill, because God has shown us goodwill. And this goodwill extends to the far reaches of the earth, to all, that, all the people that can be touched. God doesn't tell us just to love people who look like us, or just to love people who are the same age as us, or the same gender as us. No, he tells us to love our neighbors, to love our neighbors, people all around our community. And that's the message that I want to end with today, that you are all fearfully, wonderfully made in the eyes of God. And we need to see, bear witness to this, and rejoice. I say, thank you, God. I do have meaning. I do have purpose in this life. Not only that, but the people who are unborn yet, my God, God will put you so far into this world. I hope that each and every one of us are able to take this and do good with our money, do good with our lives, and not just in order to make sure that we make good money. So um, let me end with a word of prayer. We'll expire our heads, close our eyes, focus our lives on God, and ask God, how can he change us for the better? Lord, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we are all able to gather together let us love the people who have loved us, but likewise, let us love those who do not have a voice and to love those who are unable to speak with us, whether it's because they are against us or whether because they do not believe in our position. Father, I pray that you teach us to fight the good fight, to continually motivate us and shape us so that we become more like your son in love, in gentleness, in faith, in godliness, and in kindness. Lord God, I pray that you Make our hearts tender. You shape us, transform us through your word, but also through worship, through music. Let us be like the Jews. When they first read this psalm, their hearts were overjoyed, and they began to dance. God, I pray that that very same spirit that is always working within us, work within us today. I thank you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.